0: this morning and we're going to be in a couple of places obviously we finished 1st Thessalonians last week and so we're kind of starting a new trajectory over the next few weeks but this morning we've got kind of a standalone message here and this past week i came across a facebook post of a pastor in eugene oregon who is starting a new sermon series because he wants to make some changes at his church And the new sermon series is called Church Stinks, but he doesn't use the word stinks. He uses the other S word. That's the name of his new sermon series. Basically, he says that churches talk too much about sin. Churches talk too much about repentance. And when people hear the gospel, they're turned off and they think that church stinks. So he wants to make some changes to help rectify, I guess, this problem. Because he says, you know what? I'm not a preacher. I don't want to waste your time on Sunday mornings. So here's what they're going to do as a church. First of all, they're going to stop talking about sin. Secondly, they're going to cut their sermons down to about 15 to 20 minutes. And they're also going to start introducing new, new music into their worship service. You know who the new mu- music they're going to be introducing into their worship service is? Katy Perry and Maroon Maroon 5. Are going to replace praise songs and hymns now besides being very alarming to me and kind of causing concern that a pastor would do this he also told an off-color joke in the midst of this sermon it makes you stop and ask a question a very fundamental question is god pleased with this type of attitude towards his church And what would Jesus himself think about the way that his bride, the church, is talked about? What exactly is the purpose of a church? So let's make this very personal this morning to us as Emmanuel Baptist Church family. From time to time, it's important and crucial for us as a church family to step back and to, and to take a break and to evaluate and to really just ask some deep questions about who we are as a church. Because, you know, we, we can kind of go along and crank church out and, and kind of come every Sunday. And we, we've got a lot of new people coming. And, and from time to time, it's good just to stop and ask some questions about who we are as a church. So I'm giving a State of Emmanuel Church this morning message. The president gives the State of the Union. So I figured maybe I can give the State of the Church address. Where are we as Emmanuel baptist church and so here's the fundamental question that i want to ask this morning it's very important It's, it's probably the most important question we as a church family can ask and it's simply this as a church are we being obedient to what god has called us to be and to do are we being obedient to two things what god has called us to be identity who we are and are we being obedient to what God has called us to do, the commission? So before we dive into this, we, we've got we've to address these two issues. What are we supposed to be? What's our identity? What's our purpose? What's our identity? What are we supposed to be? And then, what are we supposed to do? Because the church can do a lot of things, a lot of good things. But what is the church, what is Emmanuel Baptist church supposed to be, and what are we supposed to do? So let's tackle the first one this morning, the one of identity. Who are we supposed to be? What are we supposed to to be about? Why do we exist as a church? Who are we? Why do we exist? Here it is in one sentence. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a treasured possession to display God's glory to a watching world. We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a treasured possession to display God's glory to a watching world. We're to put God's glory on display. So I want to tackle this definition of who we are from two angles. We're going to look biblically at what does God's word say about the identity of the Old Testament people of God? What did God say about the Old Testament Israelites? And then we're going to fast forward to the New Testament and see how God takes the definition that he gave in the Old Testament and expands upon it in the New Testament. And so we're going to look at what is the Old Testament people of God? What are the New Testament people of God? And what does it say about us as Emmanuel Baptist Church, the people of God? So the foundational passage of the uh, the identity of the Old Testament people of God comes from Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is foundational to who the identity of the Old Testament people are. So let me just kind of give you some history here before we dive into Exodus 19. God has delivered the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage. And how did he do that? He did that through the sacrificial substitute of a lamb, the Passover, the blood of a lamb. And then he victoriously gave them a victory through the Red Sea. And so they are on the other side now. God has provided manna for them every morning so that all of their physical needs are taken care of. God has provided water from a rock. God has has allowed the Amalekite army to be defeated that came against Israel. And now Israel's camped at the base of Mount Sinai, the holy mountain of God. And Moses, their leader, has gone up the mountain and he's about ready to receive the Ten Commandments. And God gives this message to Moses about who the Old Testament Israelites are to be. So let's pick up in Exodus 19 and hear the word of the Lord this morning. Exodus 19, verse 1. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God says, The whole earth is mine. I am sovereign over the earth, but Israel, I am choosing you as my treasured possession. And as I'm choosing you as my treasured possession, I want you to be two things I want you to be a royal priesthood, and I want you to be a holy nation. I want you to be priestly, and I want you to be holy. Now, those may sound foreign to our ears. What in the world does it mean to be a royal priesthood? We don't really think about priesthoods today. What does it mean to be a holy nation? Well, let's first of all talk about what it means to be a royal priesthood. What was Israel's call to be a royal priesthood? Well, think about the priest of Israel. The priest in Israel had two functions. Two primary functions of the priest in Israel. Number one function was to teach the Word of God. To teach lay forth to them the law of God to make sure the people were obeying God's word was number 1 that's what the priests were supposed to do number 2 they were also instrumental in the sacrificial system they were the ones that sacrificed the bulls and the goats and made sure that the sins of the people were being atoned for by blood sacrifice so there's two huge issues wrapped up in what it means to be a royal priesthood it means that as a people Israel corporately as a nation were to do two things And two things well. Number one, obey God's word. And number two, have a sacrificial system for sin. It was very simple for Israel. You will be a word-based people and a sacrificial-based people. That's what a royal priesthood was. And it wasn't just individual priests, but God says the entire nation, corporately, that's going to be your identity. So you need to be about the word of God, And you need to trust in a substitutionary atonement to take away your sins. That's what it means to be a royal priesthood. But then God also says to them, you will be a holy nation. A holy nation meant they were to be different. They were to be distinct. Their lives were to reflect God's character, God's law, and the ethical demands of the Ten Commandments would rule how they live. And they would be so different, so distinct, so radically pure that the world around them would would stand up and notice and say, wait a minute, what in the world is going on with this nation of Israel? They are different. They are different. So Israel was, was to be God's representatives on earth. Representing his word in obedience to that word, and representing his demand for the sacrifice of sins to be made through a blood atonement in the sacrificial system. And that dynamic holds true today. What are we to be about? We are to be a people that hold up the word of God in obedience to the word of God, and we hold up Jesus as the only sacrificial substitute for sin. And we, we, we do that to a watching world. One commentator has, has given this great description of the Old Testament people. And it's really stuck with me, the, the wording he uses for Israel. Listen to what he says. Israel, as a holy people, are to be a people set apart, different from all other people by what they are and are becoming. And this is what he says, a display people, a showcase to the world of how being in covenant with the Lord changes of people. I love the terminology he uses, a display people, a display people. Have you thought of yourselves? Have you thought of Emmanuel Baptist Church? We are a display people. We are a showcase people that are putting the very nature and character of God on display for a watching world. There's enormous weight to that. When the world thinks about who God is, when the world thinks about who Jesus is, and when they look at your life, are you accurately reflecting and displaying God's glory to a watching world? Are you a display people? When you were a kid and you used to play on the little merry-go-round thing, how many of you got sick on that thing? Okay, I used to I used to like spin Aiden and Zachary around, and you'd you'd spin it and you'd spin it, and you'd like want to throw up. But what usually happens when you're on that spinning thing? What is it? What does the energy or the force want to do? It wants to fling you off, right? Okay, does anybody know what that type of force is called? Centrifugal. Okay? Some of you are like centrifugal force. Centrifugal force means everything moves from the center outwards. Everything wants to fly out from the center and stretch out. That's centrifugal force. Okay? There's a force that tries to counteract centrifugal force. What force is that? Centripetal force. Okay, we're getting into a little science here this morning, but that's okay. Let me give you an analogy of centripetal force. Some of you have gone to Ehlich's, right? And you're glutton's for punishment, and you go on the mind eraser. And there's that one part of the mind eraser where you, what, go on the, the loop. And you, you want to toss your cookies on the loop or whatever. And so here's what happens. There's a force that doesn't make you fly out, But there's a force that makes you come back in to the center. That's centripetal force. So centripetal force, think of it this way. Centripetal force means everything is moving outward, coming in. It's magnetic. It's pulling you in. It wants everything to come to the center. That's centripetal. Centrifugal means everything's moving out from the center outwards. Now, why do I bring this this science lesson up to you? Israel's identity was not centrifugal God never told them to go make disciples of nations. God never told them to go out and do discipleship or do evangelism or go to the nations. Their ministry was to be centripetal in that they were to be a magnet. They were to be an attraction for all the outside pagan nations to look in on them and say, you are absolutely different. They were to be a display people. They were to be who God had called them to be. They were to be a light to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42.6 says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Now Israel's ministry, Israel's identity was more of a come and see. God said, I'm going to set you apart among all the pagan nations, and I want those pagan nations to come and see how you're different, how you're a royal priesthood, how you're a holy nation, how your laws are different, how your diets are different, how your sacrifices are different. Everything is different about you, Israel. It's a come-and-see mentality. Okay, if we just stop there, and that's all that we had as, as our identity as God's people, it would only take us halfway. That's centripetal. Come and see. Be attracted to us. And yes, we want to be attractive. We want people to come and see. We want to be a people who are on display. But we also have to be centrifugal in the sense of what? We've got to be sent out. We've got to be moving outward with the gospel. We've got to go and tell. So we can't just be content with being a display people who are attractive, who are drawing others in. We've also got to be a people that go and tell, that move out. So what I want us to do is, we've looked at the Old Testament people of God. Exodus 19, they're a treasured possession, they're a royal priesthood, they're a holy nation, they're to be a display people, an attractive people, a distinctly different people for the outside world to come and see them. Now let's go to the New Testament, and let's see how Peter fleshes out these descriptions of the Old Testament people, but then adds to them, okay? So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 and 10. In 1 Peter, what you see is Peter addressing a Gentile audience. Now, Gentiles are non-Jews, so it's important that he's addressing people that are not Jewish. They're not Israelites. But what Peter's going to do is give a description to these people that comes from the descriptions that God had given to the Israelites. So, the question then becomes, well, then what's the identity of the New Covenant people? What's the identity of the New Testament people? Well, it's, it's combining the Old Testament identity and adding to it to give a fuller composite view of who we are. So let's read 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, 9 through 10. 1 Peter 2. Now, I'm going um, to translate this in the Greek, but it's going to be kind of southern. You're like, what is Greek southern? Verse 9 but y'all, okay, but y'all are a chosen race, okay? Or we'd say here, how do we say it here in Colorado? You guys, okay? So it's, it's you plural, you guys. I grew up saying y'all because I grew up in Texas, and sometimes it still comes out, but y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, but y'all, you guys, you corporately are what? Listen to what Peter says. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Notice what Peter does here. Do you hear the same terminology that was used in Exodus? Almost exactly verbatim. And what Peter gives here are four titles. Four descriptions of who we are as the New Testament people of God that he borrows from the Old Testament people of God. So he's combining the identities here. He's combining who the Old Testament people are with the New Testament people are and bringing these identities together. So what are these four titles? Well, the first title of honor he gives to the church is that we're a chosen race. He says there, you are a chosen race. This comes from Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. chosen us to be his royal treasured possession and you may ask the question well then why did god choose us was there anything good in us was there anything worthy in us was there anything where god looked down and said you know what they the israelites were so worthy to be to be to be chosen and be saved as a matter of fact god here says no it's you weren't all that it wasn't because you were great what is god's reason for choosing a people because God gets to choose, and God loves to choose, and God does it because he loves us. I don't have an answer as to why God chooses us. All I know is that God does it in spite of the fact that we're rebellious, that we're messed up, that we're warped, that we're depraved, and God says, in spite of all that, I'm going to choose for myself a people called the church. And notice how he says, it's a chosen race. Do you realize there's only one race? in the church, there's only one race. We're called Christians. Now, we have multiple ethnicities, and we have multiple backgrounds, and we have multiple cultures, but when we come together as God's people, God brings us all together as one family. So there should be no prejudice. There should be no bigotry. There should be no racial profiling. There should be nothing of any type of racism or prejudice in the church because God has called us together as one people. There's one race. It's the chosen race that God has given Secondly, Peter calls us a royal priesthood. Now, we've already seen that in Exodus. What was the priesthood? Two things about priests. They taught the people the word of God, and they sacrificed on behalf of the people. But there's another thing that the priests did. They prayed for the people. They prayed on behalf of the people. They were the intermediaries between God, a holy God, and a sinful people. And so, one of the privileges of being a royal priesthood is that we are to be a praying people. A praying people. That God has called us to immerse ourselves in prayer. And we as a church, we need to stand firm on the truth that we cannot accomplish anything without prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. He was a 22 year old young pastor. And he was a young pastor, and his church was growing. His church was growing by leaps and bounds. As a matter of fact, it was becoming a megachurch. But the public hated him. They made fun of him in the newspapers. They mocked him. But his church was growing, and so they, they outgrew their space. So they had to decide where they were going to meet. So they decided to meet in a music hall. So they rented out a music hall that would uh, uh, be able to, to, to take all the people that were coming. And so this was the first Sunday that they were in their new building. And this 22-year-old pastor was a little nervous because it's, you know, it's, it's a new venue and all these people are coming. And so it's a Sunday night service. And because people did not like this preacher, somebody decided to play a joke that night. And they yelled out, fire. And there became a stampede where people were running for their lives. Seven people were killed that night in the worship service and 28 seriously injured on the very first night. This, this horrified, this 22-year-old pastor, he was shocked, he was heartbroken. It actually almost crippled him to where he never preached again. He could have stopped on that night and said, I'm not going forward with this. Do you guys know who that man is? That's Charles Spurgeon. None other than Charles Spurgeon, when he was 22 years old, he almost quit the ministry And this is what he said to those people as a 22-year-old young man. He warned them and he, he, he kept telling them that they need to be a people of prayer. And it was during those hard times, those early times that his church experienced revival. But listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about prayer. He said this to his church. May God help me if you stop praying for me. Let me know the day but you stop praying for me and I'll stop preaching. Let me know when you intend to stop praying and I will say to God, give me this day my tomb and let me die in the dust. We need to be a royal priesthood in the sense that we are a praying people, that we go before the throne of grace and beg God to do the impossible, that he would bring revival, that he would bring renewal, that God would do a work. The third title is that of a holy nation. We've already seen that. But Leviticus nineteen two says, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holy just means to be separate, to be distinct, to be set apart for God and His purposes. The fourth title of honor is that we are God's treasured possession. Back in 2 Peter, you are a chosen race, a royal pe- priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. God's treasured possession. Deuteronomy fourteen two. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You know, the word possession is an interesting word the original language there when when God says you're a treasured possession what it means is that you were bought at a price What was the price that you and I were bought at? Well, we were bought with the precious, valuable blood of Jesus Christ. And because Christ has bought us with his blood, God holds us, God guards us. If you remember last week's sermon about eternal security, God keeps us in his grip as his treasured possession because God has bought us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So, If you look at the identity of the Old Testament people and you look at the identity of the New Testament people, they come together. We're a treasured possession. We're to be a holy nation. We're to be a royal priesthood. We are to be a display people. A people on display, a showcase to a watching world of who God is. And so our ultimate identity is that we are worshipers. We are to put God's glory on display. That's who we are. But the second question is, what are we to be doing? What are we supposed to do as a church? What are we commissioned to be doing? Okay, this is who we are. We're a a holy people. We're a treasured possession. We're a royal priesthood. But what are we called to do as a church? There's a lot of things we can be doing as a church that are good. But what is our primary commandment to be doing? And it's simply this in a sentence. Here's the answer. We are called to declare God's gospel and to disciple for God's great commission. It's our mission. Now, mission's a buzzword. Companies have mission statements. Churches have mission statements. There was the word mission, missional. Everything, everybody seems to be wanting to do a mission. And there's a lot of things that a church can do that are good. For example... There's nothing wrong with social justice ministries. There's nothing wrong with alleviating poverty. There's nothing wrong with vacation Bible school. There's nothing wrong with having a choir and a praise team. There's nothing wrong with having age-graded programs for the entire family. There's nothing wrong for all of those types of things. But if they're not tied to the Great Commission, then they're just social ministries. They're good things to do. Do you realize there's some things that we do that aren't mandated in the Bible? The Bible never says thou shalt have VBS. I'm not against VBS. We're going to have it in a few weeks. But if vacation Bible school does not lead to making disciples, then why are we doing it? The The Bible never says thou shalt have a praise team. I'm not against a praise team. We need to have one. But if a praise team is not leading us into worship or making disciples, then we shouldn't do it. Here's the real issue. What mandates our mission? Here's the question what exactly establishes and dictates the mission of the church? What exactly establishes and dictates our mission? Because, you see, if we're not careful, we as a church can be influenced by all these other things that are supposed to tell us what to do. We can be um, given into the latest fads, and those fads come across my email almost every day or Facebook fads, techniques, marketing, all these things that we're supposed to do. If you just do this, your church will grow. If you just do this, if you just have this marketing technique, if you just adopt this program, if you just get this curriculum, if you just do all these things. I've actually seen some things on Facebook where a guy guarantees, if you pay me $100, I guarantee your church will double in six months. Yeah, maybe by bribery, or I don't know how he's going to do it. There's a lot of things we can do as a church without God in the name of marketing. Marketing. Here's what John Stott says. The church is the creation of God by His Word. Not only has He brought it into being by His Word, but He also maintains and sustains it, directs and sanctifies it, reforms and renews it through that same Word. And this is what I like what he says. The Word of God is the scepter by which Christ rules the church and the food with which He nourishes it. This Bible is the scepter that Christ rules us, and it's the food that he feeds us. So everything that we do as a church needs to flow from this word, preaching this word. What does Paul say in 2 Timothy 3? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is our authority. This is our standard. This is sufficient. Now, Paul goes on to say, what do you do with this word? In 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the word. Be ready. In season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort and com- with complete patience and teaching. So everything that we do must come through declaring the gospel, declaring this truth, preaching this word, and making disciples. Now, Jesus, as the resurrected Christ, has given the church a mission, a non-negotiable mission. We can't argue with Jesus. We can't haggle with Jesus. He's told us clearly what we are supposed to do. So what I want us to do is I want us to look in five places real quick. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So I'm telling you where we're going. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. What has Jesus crystally, clearly told us we are to do as a church? This is Jesus telling us. So if Jesus tells us this is what you're to do, then we have to ask the question, are we being obedient to what he's called us to do? So let's go to Matthew. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. And these passages of Scripture should not be earth-shattering. They should not be new. This, This is a reminder this morning of what God has called us as Emmanuel Baptist Church to do. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This is otherwise known as the Great Commission. What does Jesus commission us to do? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and do what? Make disciples. Of whom? Of all the nations. How do you do that? Well, you baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you also teach them, not just teach them, but what do you teach them? You teach them to observe all that I've commanded. You teach for obedience. You teach for transformation. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The commandment, the commission, the mission, the the mandate from Jesus is we are to make disciples. Not just here in Sterling, Colorado, in Northeastern Colorado, but all the nations. We are to make disciples. Not just to get decisions, not just to get people to raise their hand and and walk an aisle, but we're talking about making disciples where people love Jesus, they follow Jesus, they're integrated into the life of the church, they are producing as disciples, and God is calling them to lead and and to be fruitful, to make disciples. Now turn to the end of Mark, Mark 16, 15. It's in every gospel, it's in an Acts, it's just told a different way. That's Matthew's way of giving us the Great Commission. What's Mark's way of giving us the Great Commission? Mark 16, 15. And the reason I'm having you guys turn to these as opposed to put them up on the screen, because I think it's important that you see this in your own Bible, that, 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 that each of the Gospels ends this way. Mark 16, 15. And Jesus said to them, He said to them, Go into all the world and do what? Proclaim the gospel to whom? The whole creation. Preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, share the gospel, share the good news to all creation. Preach the gospel, declare the gospel, make disciples. Okay, let's go to Luke, Luke 24. Luke 24, 46 through 49. After Jesus has risen from the grave and he has taught his disciples how to understand the Old Testament, he gives them this commission. (laughs) Luke 24, 46-49. Again, these are the words of Jesus. He said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed, should be preached, should be shared, in his name, to whom all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem... You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We're to proclaim what? Forgiveness of sins, repentance, to whom? All creation. Matthew, make disciples of all nations. Mark, preach the gospel to all creation. Luke, preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins to all creation. Okay, let's go to John. John seventeen eighteen. We're going to actually two places in John. He says the same thing, but I'll, I'll just show it to you twice. John 17, 18. A little bit briefer in John. John 17, 18. Jesus says, as he's talking to his Father in heaven, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Sent them into the world to do What? He's already told us to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to, to declare the gospel. He sent us into the world. John 20, 21. He says it again. John 20, 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. So we're being sent We're preaching, we're declaring the gospel, we're making disciples, we're going into all the world, we're going to the nations, we're going out, we're being centrifugal and centripetal. What does centripetal mean? We are attractive so the outside world is drawn to us. That's centripetal. Centrifugal means we're going out to the world because a lot of times the world doesn't come to us. We're going out, we're preaching, we're going to the nations, we're doing evangelism, we're doing discipleship. And then Acts 1.8. Jesus says it one more time in case we didn't get it. Didn't get it in Matthew, didn't get it in Mark, didn't get it in Luke, didn't get it in John. Let's just see one more time, the early church, if, if you get it, Acts 1.8. Acts 1.8. This should be a familiar passage of Scripture. Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's the mission very simple. You go, you make disciples, you preach the gospel, you, you, you witness, we move outward from the four walls of the church, and we share the gospel, and we do evangelism, we do discipleship, and we move centrifugally outwardly, not only here to our neighborhoods, and to our friends, and to our family, and to our coworkers and to the people that we rub shoulders with in our neighborhoods, but we go to the ends of the world. We go to the villages in India, we go to the city of Moscow, we go to Nicaragua, we go to these places with the gospel. Now, I want to go back to 1 Peter for a moment, go back to 1 Peter 2, because I only dealt with half the verse. Because what 1 Peter 2.9 does, it, Peter masterfully combines two things together in that one verse. Peter, just in a nutshell, says, first part of the verse, here's who you are, identity. Second part of the verse, here's what you do, Mission. It's your identity and your mission are wrapped up in 1 Peter 2.9, and he takes and borrows from who the Old Testament people were. What does he say back in 1 Peter 2.9? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Does the verse stop there? No, that's identity. What's that word that comes next? You say it with me. That, or so that, which means here's the purpose of, of why we exist. That you may do what? proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light that word proclaim is only used here in the bible the word means to publish abroad to broadcast to publicize to declare to shout to yell to to get the word out there what are we to publicly proclaim what does peter say we are to declare the excellencies what are the excellencies of god Well, it's all of who God is. It's his character. It's his majesty. But most importantly, the excellencies of God are the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the command for all people to repent and believe in him for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. We're to proclaim that to the world. Why? Why are we to proclaim that? Because what has God done? God has made us worshipers. How has he made us worshipers? What does it say there? He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason that you can share the gospel is because you were once in darkness, you were once in bondage, you were once in sin, and God delivered you out of that. And because God delivered you out of that, now you can go tell people there's hope for them to be delivered out of that. And they don't have to stay in their sin, and they don't have to stay in their shame, and they don't have to stay in their guilt because Christ is an awesome, powerful Savior, and He saved me, and He can save you. And so I'm going to proclaim that to you, and I'm going to tell you, you don't have to be in darkness anymore. You can come into the lights. It's our conversion. Just for the sake of time, let me give you John 3, 19 through 20. Listen to what Jesus says. This is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But what has God done in our salvation? He's rescued us out of the darkness. He's called us out of the darkness. He's pulled us out of the darkness. He's pulled us out of our sin. He's pulled us out of our shame. He's pulled us out of our guilt. He's pulled us and rescued us out of that pit, and he's given us eternal life so that now we are a new creation. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We are a saved people. We're a holy people. We're a holy nation. We're a treasured possession. We're a royal priesthood. We're saved, we're new, we're sanctified, we're, 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 we're all the other words that the Bible talks about what a saved person is. But here's the goal. And this gets where churches get very dangerous. If the goal for Emmanuel Baptist Church is to sit back and say, wow, we're a saved people, let's keep it to ourselves, we have failed. We failed. Yes, we are to be attraction. Yes, we're to be holy. Yes, we're to be a magnet to a watching world. But at the same time, we are to go out and share the gospel and proclaim the gospel and to make disciples of all nations and go to the nations to move out from the center. Yes, we want to be centripetal in that people are drawn to the center. They're drawn to us. There's something attractive. There's something different. There's something unique about who we are as a people. They're drawn to us. But at the same time, we want to be centrifugal where we're sending you out. And you're going out and you're you're moving out from the church and you're making disciples and you're making relationships and you're investing in people and, and and you're doing discipleship and you're doing evangelism. Listen to what John Piper says. This is a pretty profound quote. You have to think about it missions is not the ultimate goal of the church well i thought you just said missions is the ultimate goal of the church john he says no worship is missions exist because worship doesn't therefore worship is the fuel and goal of missions what do we want to see we want to see more worshipers we want to see more rebels bowing their knees to King Jesus. And so we as worshipers go out and witness. There's worship and witness. We are worshipers and we witness. And so here's my challenge to you, Emmanuel Baptist Church, Do you individually. Do you truly see yourself as a treasured possession, as a holy nation, as a royal priesthood, as a display people? Do you see yourself as a display person? Then when people look at you and people look at our church, they say, wow, you've put God on display And it's beautiful, it's glorious. I can see who God is because of your life. You're living in such a way that you bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. You're being obedient to his word and you're believing in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. You are a person who reflects the glory of God. But secondly, do you see not just who you're supposed to be, but what you're supposed to do? That you're supposed to be making disciples. That's just not just my job. He gave that commission to the church. Do you see yourselves as one who's to be going out, making disciples, investing in lost people, sharing the gospel, being a witness, telling your friends about Jesus, going to the dark regions of the earth with the gospel? Do you see yourself as one sent on a mission out to the lost? Do you see yourself as someone on a mission to do something bigger than yourselves? Something bigger than yourselves and only God can do, and that is save lost sinners through your verbal testimony. So here's the bottom line. Here's the foundation for our church. Whatever else we do as a church, we will fail miserably if we don't do these three things. If we do not display God's glory, and we do not declare God's gospel, and we do not disciple for God's great commission, we might as well pack up and leave because we fail. There's a lot of great things churches can do, there's a lot of great things we can do, but those three things are the foundation of who we are. It's all about God's glory. It's all about his gospel and it's all about the great commission. So I want to ask you to reflect as we take the Lord's Supper, are you being obedient to those three things? Are you displaying God's glory? Are you declaring God's gospel? And are you making disciples in light of God's great commission? So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning in preparation for the Lord's Supper. And just evaluate yourself and evaluate where you are in your relationship with Christ and make a commitment this morning to live according to your identity and to be obedient to the mission. Obedient individuals. So Lord, my prayer for myself and my prayer for everyone that's connected to Emmanuel Baptist Church is that we would be a display people. Then, when people look at our lives, when people look at our church, we are accurately reflecting who you are, God, your your glory, your majesty, your character. That we are a people who obey your word. And Father, we're not ashamed of the gospel, but we share the gospel. We declare the gospel. We witness to our friends. We're, We're bold in the gospel. And we make disciples. We're baptizing new believers. We're teaching for obedience. We're going to unreached people groups. We're going to our neighborhoods. We're going to our workplaces. We're going to our schools. We're going to our teams. Wherever you've called us to go, we're going and making disciples. Father, help us to be obedient to who we are and help us to be obedient to what you've called us to do. For the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.